as Louis Tiant once said, if you put me in after I die, don't go. What's up, everybody? Welcome to an episode of Championship or Bust, and we're going to start really ticked off and ready to roll. So, I come home from Disney on August 20th, late at night, and I get the news that Maxie Bond passed away. Legendary linebacker for the Philadelphia Eagles, nine-time Pro Bowler, seven-time All-Pro, if you count first and second teams, and never made the Hall of Fame. Lived a very long life, by all accounts a great life, but one thing that I immediately notice is just the lack of respect that's given to all of these players in every sport to the point where as soon as they pass away, they get elected. Now, that did not happen with Maxie Bourne this year. Uh, the election took place two days later, and he did not get elected in. But somebody else got in who did pass away in 2015, and that was Art Powell. Uh, Art Powell should have been in years ago. I don't understand what's taking so long. And Steve McMichael also was elected as a senior finalist for the Hall of Fame, who is currently suffering from ALS. Why are we waiting so long to recognize these people for what for giving them the achievement that they so richly deserve and it's happened time and time again in basketball we saw it with dennis johnson in football we saw it with ken riley who is fifth all time in interceptions passes away gets elected a year later ken stabler one of the most legendary quarterbacks of the 60s and 70s passes away gets elected dick stanfell passes away was passed over in the senior committee on multiple occasions, gets in right after he passes away. And in baseball, we have Ron Santo, who was considered for years to be the biggest snub in the Hall of Fame. Passes away, gets in. Buck O'Neill, instrumental in Negro League baseball history. 2006, they have their committee for the Negro Leagues to elect them into the Hall of Fame. It was basically the committee to elect Buck O'Neill, and they managed to not elect Buck O'Neill. <laughs> Buck O'Neill passes away soon after that, and they open the door again for the Negro Leagues after Adam Dorowski and Baseball Reference started to uncover more statistics. Magically, Buck O'Neill's a Hall of Famer now that he's dead. Minnie Mignoso, who's considered by many to be the Jackie Robinson of Hispanic and Latino players, passes away, gets elected. And we're seeing it now with Dick Allen, who fell short by one vote while he was alive. Fell short again by one vote at, uh, right after he passed away. And magically now, next election, he'll be getting in. And it might sound like I'm having a problem with the Veterans Committee as a whole. I'm really not. I don't have a problem with the voters. They're met with an impossible task. My problem is with the Hall of Fame as an institution itself making these voting limits that are going on. I was going through for the past 20, 30 years, and in the vast majority of ballots, they have more than 10 baseball players that end up elected into the Hall of Fame. But you can only vote for 10 at a time. So what that tells me is, is that there's more Hall of Famers on a ballot than the writers are allowed to vote for, which mm -hmm. creates a system that allows for all of these guys to get the recognition they deserve when it's way too late. And I'm sick of hearing all these heartwarming stories of, oh, they're looking down and they're pleased that they're in the Hall of Fame. No, they're not. They wanted to enjoy it while they were here. 
Stop with the fantasy lands. Let's get people. Let's fix this problem that's been going on for really the last 20, 30 years. And finally give these guys the recognition that they deserve. I'm sorry to start on a rough note, but what's up, everybody? Welcome to the 1913 episode of Championship or Bust <laughs> with Mac, Zach, and Josh. Uh, we have the Philadelphia Athletics and the New York Giants today. Philadelphia Athletics win. Josh, All take right, it over. Your pants, I'll take over from here. <laughs> Just trying to stand yeah, up for the players so. that we're talking about here. So the 1913 World Series, American League, Philadelphia Athletics, National League, New York Giants. Both of these teams came in pretty hot. Win both their divisions by a pretty good amount of games. Uh, teams were pretty even on paper, although a lot of people thought <clears throat> that the Athletics would end up winning the series after beating the Giants two years prior. So, game one, back and forth game. Chief Bender on the mound for the Athletics. Rube Marquardt on the mound for the Giants. Both both of these guys, future Hall of Famers, both pitched like crap. Home run Baker ended up driving in three runs on three hits, <laughs> including a home run, living up to his name. And that ended up standing as a difference maker in a 6-4 win for the Athletics. Game two, Christy Madison takes the mound, and he, of course, throws a gem. Got into some trouble in the bottom of the ninth inning, but a heads-up play by the first baseman guns out a runner at home, keeping the game tied 0-0. Going into the top of the 10th, where Matheson just does it himself and hits an RBI single, which would stand as a winning run as Madison goes out there and finishes the 10th inning for a 10-inning shutout complete game. Because why not? <laughs> so, with the series tied, game three, the Athletics end up jumping out to a five-run lead, scoring three and two runs in the first two innings off of Jeff Tessero. Eddie Collins led the Athletics offense with three RBIs and three hits, and Bullet Joe Bush would pick up a win and an 8-2 win for the Athletics. Game four saw Chief Bender go out there, basically repeating his performance of game one. He went the distance, picked up the win, but he didn't really pitch that great. Because the Athletics nearly blew a 6-0 lead, barely hanging on for a 6-5 win. Uh, and rookie Wally Shang would end up being the Athletics' unlikely hero, driving in four runs that game. Going on to Game 5, Madison on the mound again for the Giants. He allows only three runs in a complete game. Not his best start, but the Giants gave him no support at all whatsoever. Only able to get two hits, and the only run they scored was unearned. <laughs> and the Athletics would win that game 3-1, to one, the series 4-1, wow. and capture a third title in four years. Unearned runs. Mm. Sounds very familiar, huh? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so going into the Hall of Famers from the 1913 World Series, we start with, of course, the umpires, Bill Clem <laughs> and Tommy Connolly. No, I do not have rankings for <laughs> So I apologize. Are you sure? We're all dying to know. I don't have that yet. Give it time. We'll get there. Um, Right. (laughs) Gotta love Angel Hernandez. Jim Joyce, number two. (laughs) So let's start off with the losing New York Giants, which we'll be talking a lot more about as we go on. So I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on them. Um, Once again, I'll go through my rankings that I had um, for years, they do change every once in a while. And, you know, I, you know, on my whims, I sometimes change them. I update it usually like once a month, but John McGraw, <laughs> fifth pennant still has one world series title. I have him as the number five manager of all time. 
Rube Marquard, third World Series appearance. We've talked about him at length. He was 0-1 in two games, seven earned runs in nine innings. Had a rough time. Uh, definitely a basement guy. We've talked about that, so we'll move on. Christy Mathewson led league in ERA uh, with 2.06 during 1913. So he was still an elite pitcher, but this was his fourth and final World Series appearance. Uh, he was 1-1 one one with a 0.95 ERA in the series, giving up two earned runs in 19 innings. Uh, had a 72 strikeout to walk ratio. Have him at number seven in between Pedro Martinez and Sandy Koufax. And I also wanted to touch base on a new player who's not in the Hall of Fame and will never be in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, I think I've heard Thorpe. the name, but I can't. You guys know uh, who he is? Can't put my finger on it. Yeah, same. So Jim Thorpe's actually a significant part of actually school curriculums now because he was the first Native American to win a gold medal for the United States in the Olympics. He won two Olympic gold medals in the 1912 Summer Olympics, one in the pentathlon and one in the decathlon. And not only that, he obviously played professional baseball for the New York Giants, and he played football, and football was probably his best sport. So he was a gold medalist in two different events, played football, was uh, eventually inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame, and he was part of the inaugural Pro Football Hall of Fame class of 1963. So this was basically like the Bo Jackson before Bo Jackson. Um, He did not play in the World Series this year, but he was part of the team. And uh, this was actually his rookie season. So this is the first time that he would have had any opportunity to appear in the World Series. We will talk about him um, in a future episode as well because he did play in one. Um, But I wanted to bring it up because he's definitely someone who's had a profound impact on both sports and American history, being the first Native American to win a gold medal for the United States. (laughs) Uh, but wow. moving on to the World Series champion, Philadelphia Athletics, Connie Mack, his third World Series and fifth pennant. I have him as the number three manager behind the Yankees, Joe McCarthy, and the Dodgers, Walter Alston. Um, starting off with the DNP, Herb Pennick. So this is the first time that his name surfaced here, but it will definitely not be the last. He played for the Athletics to start his career and only played 14 games in the season with a 5 ERA, but he wound up going to Boston and he was part of the 1920s and 30s New York Yankees. So you'll hear him a lot. He went 241 and 162 with a 3.60 ERA. Keep in mind the era when I say 3.60 ERA, and had two top five MVP finishes. He did lead the league in whip twice, so um, definitely had his seasons. Sabermetrics did not love him at all with a 45 career war, 41 jaws, both are 20 to 30 below the average Hall of Famer. Wow. Um, I do have him in the basement, and I do hear some or see some similarities to Catfish Hunter here because both played for the Athletics, both played for the Yankees, both were more known for being involved in winning, but neither one were really loved by the Sabermetrics and the stat guys. Uh, then we have Frank Home Run Baker, who led the league in home runs with 12. Yay. RBIs with 117. So that's a little more like it. Respectable. <laughs> um, this was his third World Series, and he's won all three so far. So he's 3-0. and uh, Had a great World Series, going 9 for 20. One home run, seven RBIs. And I have him as the number nine third baseman uh, below Dick Allen, who I mentioned before in the intro, and above Nolan Arenado, who oh, I wow. just added in. and. After thinking about it, you know, 300-plus home runs, 10 gold gloves, I, I think he gets there. He's just good at everything. 
Uh, moving on to Eddie Collins, who we've talked about before. He led the league in runs scored this season, third in MVP voting, third World Series appearance, also 3-0. Eight for 19 with two triples and three RBIs. I have him as the number four second baseman ever, just below Jackie Robinson, just above Rod Carew. And I have him as the best second baseman in level four. Uh, Chief Bender, fourth appearance, third title, uh, 2-0 and with nine runs and 18 innings. So as Josh mentioned, did not pitch the best. I have him as the number 47 pitcher in the Hall of Fame, which is a mid-level one-ish. Um, didn't have him in for a while. This is one where the podcast definitely contributed to me adding him in because I got to learn a little bit more about him. Mm-hmm. And lastly, Eddie Plank, who we'll be talking a little bit more about in the uh, later portion. But this is fourth appearance, third World Series, and it's his age 37 season, so definitely a veteran at this point. He went 1-1 one one with a .95 ERA with two runs in 19 innings, and I have him as the number 33 starting pitcher in level two between Mike Mussina and Addy Joss. Now, for background, Addy Joss is the all-time leader in ERA, with an ERA of right around two, but he also he only played nine seasons. They made an exception for him due to some extenuating circumstances to put him in the Hall of Fame. So I marked him as a level two just because when he played, he was so dominant. Wow. So that covers the Hall of Famers. Um, we'll move kind of into... Um, this article from actually Hall of Famer Christy Mathewson. So, fitting enough, you know, when Derek Jeter retired, he created the Players Tribune where the players got to write <laughs> the articles. Well, Christy Mathewson got to write an article, and the article was called Why We Lost Three Worlds Championships. So, I got to credit Josh because he found this one. So, I'll let him kind of take the reins on this. And yeah, so we'll come back to I'm it. just going to kind of gloss over it here because it, it, it is rather lengthy and I, I I highly I highly encourage anybody who wants to it is long. read it for themselves to read it because it, it's 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 wordy. It's a read. But you know to, to to sum it up in in as short as possible, basically after losing after losing the World Series in, in nineteen thirteen, a year later in October of nineteen fourteen this article was published and he wrote it probably a few months before that, I think. Um, and this was also right when the Giants were about to lose the pennant uh, in the National League. So a lot of people drew some parallels to the things that he said, which was actually happening as this article was published. But, you know, he basically <laughs> came out and said, yes, we lost the World Series three times. And why, you may ask. And he says that mostly it is a study of human psychology. It was basically his main point that if you looked at the players, especially on the athletics, these guys were, they were cool. They were cool as a cucumber. You know, the days before the games, these guys were, you know, they were, they were going to bed early. They were getting good rest. They were waking up, worrying about breakfast, and they were getting on the field and they were playing. And the Giants were on edge. They were over anxious. Everything, everything that could have gone wrong did go wrong. That was one of the main things he said, which I find kind of interesting, considering that's such a big topic nowadays. Another topic that he talks about is that, on top of being over anxious and over excited, without fully naming names, he says that a lot of guys would go off the bat and 
make errors in the field and, and anything, and they would sit, they would go into the bench and sit down and go, damn, I just blew $5,000. Damn, I just blew $100 on that. Thinking about whatever was in their contract or, or whatever they, the team would have made if they had won that game. What all these guys cared about was, was money. That they really weren't, I guess, dedicated to winning as, as Matthewson was or, or he thought they should have been. It's interesting that you bring that up because Smokey Joe Wood had that bet with them too, where apparently Smokey Joe had his friend put out five thousand, uh, not $5,000, $500 to bet on Boston to win the next game, according to Matthewson, which is a pretty hefty accusation. Right, and I mean, he, you know, he, he refers a few times in this article to, um, you know, we talked about in 1912, that fly ball that, that the center fielder Snodgrass dropped. And they talk about that play, that that play basically cost $30,000 because that was the difference in, in, in compensation between the winning and the losing team in the World Series back then. And and how, you know, basically between Merkel's error way back when and Snodgrass's error, you know, these guys are costing teams money and, and you know, they don't – they only think about that one play and, like, Snodgrass made a really great play on the next on the next hit. Like right after he dropped that ball, like you don't think of that because it was that one moment where the nerves got the best of them and, and they messed up. And I think, you know, probably the biggest part of this article that I thought was interesting is that he goes into this huge breakdown between the managers of the Athletics and the Giants, where he basically says that McGraw, John McGraw, the manager of the Giants, that uh, these guys did not wipe their butts without McGraw's approval and planning where McGraw was basically calling the game for them offensively, defensively, where every player on that team leaned upon him entirely. Like they did not think unless he told them what to do and how, you know, Connie Mack on the athletics, like he, he had his guys that he trusted. He had his veterans and these guys did not need to be spoon fed, you know, things to do. Where you know he he all he had to do was be that calming presence, and the Giants just did not have that, and that was the difference. You know, again, it goes back to he, you know, the psychology of baseball, as he calls it, where the guy they were just overhyped and they and they made mistakes. Where you know he kept saying, you know, these these two teams they're, they're the same on paper. The Giants the Giants had absolutely no reason to lose, and if they did lose, it should have been close. But no, I mean they got absolutely run over, and it just should not have been that way. And I mean, again, it's a it's a long, it's a very long article. And I, I encourage anyone to read it. But to sum it up in, in as little as I can, that's, that's basically the gist of it. And then he finishes the article by saying, "Oh, and I hope uh, I hope no one accuses me of being a poor sport. Uh, I, I'm not I'm not squealing. Yeah, I'm not." He says, "I'm I have not squealed. I only analyze the situation from things that I know." Everyone's mentally weak. What they a statement! Pressure and McGraw's yeah. a pirate. But I hope. <laughs> I love it, dude. I love that that was the time. Like that was the inaugural class of the Hall of Fame. You have him and Ty Cobb and Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth smoking on the field. Ty Cobb spiking people left and right, and he's writing this article. And this the expose did not matter. <laughs> I think it's great. But one thing that stood out to me actually before we get into kind of my question for it is um, he mentions that basically the, the Giants were 
completely effective against star pitchers such as Hendricks, formerly of Pittsburgh, Seton, now at the Brooklyn Feds, and Alexander of Philadelphia, which I assume is Grover Cleveland Alexander, and Rucker of Brooklyn. Yet against the Athletics pitching staff, this is directly from Matthewson himself, yet against the <laughs> Athletics pitching staff, which honestly in 1913 had no man as good as any of the four stars I have mentioned. Only one of those guys that he mentioned is in the Hall of Fame. The Athletics had Chief Bender. Right. And the had Eddie Plank. Disrespect to the Hall of Famers' names. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, and he does it so eloquently in a way that I, it can I only mean, be done if, in the If I had a career yeah, exactly. ERA in the playoffs of, <laughs> that's under one, and I won one time in four tries, I'd, I'd be a little heated myself. I would be mad too. I mean, he did he did everything that he could. And, and, <laughs> and, and, respectfully. Know, obviously, he threw a lot of guys under the bus in this article. And they kind of, it kind of let him get away with it because he was at the end of his yeah. career, and you know. What are you gonna do? He's a legend. Like, but it's nothing that hasn't been done before, right? Like we've seen players who have had these outbursts, or players that have publicly called out teammates. You know, let's be real. LeBron's done it. LeBron's gotten coaches fired. Yes. You know, we've seen it all the time. Like, look, Chris Sales, you know, breaking stuff in the locker room. You know, Garrett Cole sat down and was like, I'm a representative of myself and not the team. It's like, this happens. I know. We were having this conversation off the pod, but I think it's like type of this type of sport. I immediately went to basketball players and just the way they act today. Like, my mind immediately went to James Harden. Obviously, the Daryl Morey stuff, like, what, two weeks ago? Yeah. Um, it's so funny. That's the most recent example. I didn't even think of it. It went right over my Yeah. Head. Like, that. it's just... Basketball Daryl players Morey are just like that. And I will never be a part of his organization again. <laughs> my mind went to the bad boys of the idea of, like, I guess, quote-unquote, sore loser, even though I believe Matthewson justified in what he's saying. But the bad boys, the bad boy Pistons won their two titles. And, you know, Josh, I know you're not a basketball guy, but you may know the name Isaiah Thomas. Um, and what wound up happening was after they lost to Jordan's Bulls, and that really started that dynasty, um, Either that season, the following season, or the season after that, Isaiah Thomas, who was the best player on the team, punched Bill Lambeer mm-hmm. and broke his hand punching him. Dumb and man. that was basically the end of the dynasty. The end, I shouldn't say dynasty, but that was the end of the Bad Boys 2 championship run that could have been even more. Right. And they're looked at very infamously because they were known for being really dirty and they were the villains of the league. But that was kind of, and it's ironic that that's how it ended that it ended with that punch to the face. Dirty behavior. But, you know, I, you mentioned basketball, and what stuck out to me as a Nick fan growing up on Long Island is Amari Stoudemire punching the fire extinguisher <laughs> and getting stitches in his hands. I forgot and about that. I'm one of the few people who like basketball and like Rudy Gobert. It's like a Venn diagram. It's like people who like basketball – and then, like, the one or two people who like Rudy Gobert and then the people in the middle, and I'm that guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this year, Gobert actually, like, got some street cred. He punched Kyle Anderson. And the response was he hit a wall in anger and was out for the rest of the season. <laughs> so, he, you know, the trade-off for looking tougher for his teammates was, you know, losing his teammate right before a play-in game. So not the best timing from Rudy there, which I guess he's known for considering the touching of the microphone right before COVID. Yeah. But neither here nor there. And even um, just going back to what Josh was saying about the article about these players, like 
thinking about money again. I don't know what it is about basketball players today, but I don't know. Did you think of like Ben Simmons and Anthony Davis, like sitting out type thing? So you wait out your contract. Ben Simmons, I definitely yeah. Ben Simmons came out. I didn't. I didn't think of Anthony Davis, but that could have been one also. Um, like you could go with honestly a ton of people, like the low management guys. Yeah, stand out. You know, but the difference is they're already getting paid, so that's like a whole other animal. Right. But they're doing it supposedly because they want to win. Uh, you know, you can argue either way what the rationale is there. Mm. Um, the other one that stuck out to me, and because of how Matthewson was so articulate in the speech, I understand it was 1914 terminology and not now, but it reminded me a lot of Richard Sherman. Now, Richard Sherman was born and raised in Compton, graduated Stanford, um, and became an all-pro corner, obviously for the Seattle Seahawks and the San Francisco 49ers. But he had multiple press conferences in which he would not rip his teammates necessarily, but either rip opponents for behavior that he questioned or would rip the NFL for questionable practices like Thursday night football. You know, one of the things that he said that really stuck out to me for a while was how the NFL is so worried about player safety. Why are they having the players play on five days rest? Mm. And I remember he was with, I think Doug Baldwin and I think Doug Bowen had a cardboard cutout and Richard Sherman was just modeling it talking, <laughs> you know, just high vocabulary, like really like well thought out speech. And it went a long way with the people who listened to it. Obviously the NFL still has Thursday night football because like money, like Matthewson said, money conquers all, but Richard Sherman, like Matthewson made some really, really good points. And he did it in a very articulate manner. So that was the one that immediately drew a parallel to me. Anything to add, Sherm? No, I mean, I think you guys covered it. I mean, I've never seen guys, like, blow up at other players. I mean, I've seen players, you know, refuse to report to teams and stuff like that. Um, but no, I, th- I think I think you guys mm-hmm. covered it. Do we... Do we have anything? I have a couple, but it's up to you guys if you want to run it. I had one thing. Um, I know you said psychology of baseball and all that and how pressure. It's just nerves, and we still see nerves today. Like, that stuff doesn't go away. Like, you know, you have teams blowing 3-1, 3-0 series leads all the time. I mean, not yeah, all the time, like when but Smith is, forgot what the it, score it does was. occur. But I did think. Right, exactly. Like, stuff like that happens all the time. But it was interesting to hear him say that like so eloquently the way he he said it before people just say now it's like, oh, it's just nerves. And he has a point tying into the past with like the Cubs. No one complained when the Cubs lost. Mm-hmm. But I feel Our like this Giants team was a little more talented in terms of the players that were on the team. Yeah. All right, so talking about John McGraw, going back to that, like we see the over-reliance maybe of managers, at least back then. Any modern examples that maybe stick out of, you know, anything, we'll say, past 1960, 1950? Uh, we could talk about the exact opposite, what analytics has done to the game. No, I, I mean, there's, <laughs> I there's still yeah. comparable. I mean, there's still no, there's coaches that, that have impact on games. I mean, you look at guys like, you know, our favorite manager, Aaron Boone, who is just a complete moron. I mean, I mean, I mean. Yes, you can say that he that he sure. Know, he goes <laughs> and analytics, but I mean, the guy blows games like nobody's business. 
Um, but I mean, on the other, on the other end of that, you know, uh, not, not baseball, but you know, you look at hockey, I mean, you look at, you look at Barry Trotz and, and the Islanders What you know, what he did is, I mean, that team was an absolute dumpster fire and, uh, nobody can, uh, tell me different. And Trotz came in and he, and he, you know, he instilled this, this, mm-hmm. you know, professionalism and, and responsibility among the players. And he turned basically the same roster the year before into, you know, a playoff team, you know, for multiple years prior, just you know, being the way he was with, with the players. And I feel like there was a giant roster change. But, you know, a guy like that, you know, as a guy like, you know, teams are going to follow. I mean, you see a lot of coaches, you know. I mean, I, I don't know really how, you know, it becomes, you know, how important are managers in baseball to other sports. And I say hockey because hockey managers tend to, you know, they, they, they tend to have a big impact on the team. And you look at guys like, you know, the John Tortorella, you know, he's he's been around the block a long time. And, and you know he yep. he's effective for a few years yeah. because he basically just scares the crap out of his team and he works the crap out of them and after three or four years the teams rebel and then he gets fired. But for those three years, man, those teams are yep. good. It's happening in Philly. Yeah, well, Philly's uh, except for Philly. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy, I, I know, I know, you, I know a resident Philly fan yeah. would, would speak to that. Mm-hmm. Oh please, we no, all know no, I'm not a Flyers fan of anything. Family. Right, <laughs> Buffalo Tage Thompsons. Oh my God! No, actually, the way you said that, we love Go ahead, him. Sorry. No, he was just ripping Buffalo. But I, I actually was going to mention uh, Tortorella. I totally agree with Sherm there. Like, there's a different style of coaching that you can just run into, where he takes over the locker room, he takes over the presence of the game, takes over what you're doing, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. See, it's funny. I feel like the way that we're talking about it, it sounds very similar to when people talk about culture of, yeah, they're going to come in and change the culture of the team. You know, your Bill Belichick's, uh, your Andy Reid's, um, your Greg Popovich's, uh, for baseball, one that sticks out is actually one who's never won a world series yet. But I think if he won a world series, he would instantly go right into the hall of fame. And it's kind of ironic considering they're having a rough year right now, but Buck Showalter, you know, Buck Showalter gets hired sort of like a John Tortorella for a couple of years. He turns the team around and then eventually the message just goes stale. And I don't know what it is, but it's, it happens seemingly everywhere that he goes where the team starts out like consistent improvement very quickly. And then yeah. when it crashes, it crashes hard. But I think he sticks out as a guy who changes the culture the second he walks in. And I had two basketball guys in mind here really that stuck out to me. The first is Pat Riley, just because, in my opinion, he might be the greatest coach of all time, just because he adjusted to three different franchises with three very different eras and three very different playing styles. He got to start with the Showtime Lakers, very offensive heavy, Magic Johnson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And, you know, he helped them win multiple championships. Then he goes to the Knicks. Didn't win a championship, but that was a team that was kind of like the Bad Boy Pistons. They were they were tough. They were on the dirtier side at times with Charles Oakley and Patrick Ewing and Anthony Mason, and he made a finals with them. He took that team with really Patrick Ewing being the only star-level guy to one game away from a championship, which I wish we could get anywhere near now. And then he went to the Miami Heat with Dwayne Wade and Shaquille O'Neal. Three very different styles, three very different times of the game, and he had success with all of them. Um, and the last one that really stuck out to me, and 
I don't know how well you guys know this guy, but I, I hope you know him a little bit, and that's John Wooden. No. John Wooden was a college basketball coach at UCLA for decades. Very well respected. Um, coach Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Coach Bill Walton. But the thing with him was that he – it was always personality, character first, basketball second. And he had what was known – as the pyramid of success that he created. And I actually have this hanging up in my uh, office right now. Um, but some of the skills, each portion has, like each level of the pyramid, I should say, has a level, a number of skills. So the bottom is industriousness, friendship, loyalty, cooperation, <laughs> enthusiasm. This then goes up to self-control, alertness, initiative, and intentness. Then this goes up to condition, skill, and team spirit then poise and confidence, and then the top is competitive greatness. All of those skills can apply to pretty much any line of life, which is why I think John Wooden was the perfect college basketball coach, is he was preparing his guys to be men as well as, you know, men first. Yeah. Men of faith, men who um, were ready to succeed in whatever line of work they pursued if basketball didn't work out. And then basketball second. And the things on the side, he had multiple triangles on the side of those pyramids that you need to go up to the next level. So some of those were ambition, resourcefulness, fight, faith, patience, integrity, reliability. So he was basically taking on another role as a father as well as a coach. So as soon as we were talking about McGraw and how like a lot of the decisions came from him – Wooden came out to me because, you know, just the idea of starting fresh and almost re-raising his players. Mm-hmm. And it was very successful. He was very well-respected. He was beloved at UCLA and really all the basketball world. And he won 10 NCAA championships, which is still a record. So oh, wow. He, he, is the, in, he actually, in terms of pure basketball, might be the greatest coach ever if you're going at any level. He's right up there with the hour box and the Phil Jacksons and the Popoviches. So that stuck out to me. When you um, were talking about Pat Riley, for some reason, I thought it, I know it's not, um, I guess, as applicable, 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 Jesus, anymore, but I was thinking of Joe Madden. Um, his initial tenure with the Rays, like he was like, you know, who is this guy? He was out of that, at the time, he was a very out of box thinker develops the shift, gets the race to the World Series, um, and obviously he wins it with the Cubs years later. Uh, that sort of just reminded me of him when you were speaking about Pat Riley. No, I can definitely see that because he was also the one who broke the curse. Yep. The two teams that have had a history of failure, you know, end up succeeding under his tenure. The Rays obviously didn't win the World Series, but they came really close, and the Cubs broke a curse of 108 years, which I can't wait to talk about. And hundred some episodes, <laughs> hundred and three episodes from now, not including any special ones that we do. In terms of current events, Big Mac here texted the group chat before today's pod. He had a big uh, hot topic he wanted to discuss, so I'm going to give him the floor. Go ahead, sir. All right. So, I know I started this with the Hall of Fame. It's going to be kind of a Hall of Fame heavy episode, but when looking at the pitchers who are active who have strong chances in the Hall of Fame, we have four guys who are pretty much locks that are currently playing. Clayton Kershaw, Justin Verlander, Max Scherzer, Zach Greinke. 
Before I get started with this, are there any disagreements no. here before I move on? No. You're all in. This, this is important for the research portion of this. So right. we all agree Kershaw, Verlander, Scherzer, Greinke, in. Yes. Right? Cool. So in reading articles from people like Jay Jaffe and Jason Stark, there's a lot of questions as to what other active pitchers have even a slight chance at the Hall of Fame because, you know, obviously the five-man rotations, the innings restrictions, it's hard to build up those stats. So guys that come up usually include Garrett Cole, Aaron Nola, Chris Sale, Jacob deGrom, Adam Wainwright, some of them for sabermetrics, some of them just because they're young and they have a chance to build up their career numbers, and others because you know they were around for a really long time and picked up those accolades but may not have those career milestones. But I want to throw a name out there that I haven't seen really get any consideration in these talks. Not necessarily to get in the Hall of Fame, but to even have a foot in the door to potentially make it there one day. And I think he's getting closer and closer with every single start that he's making. And that's Blake Snell. Now, this what? isn't saying he's a Hall of Famer today, but I'm just saying this is an opportunity to forecast his future chances. So let's begin with Don't a little Kevin examination Cash. of Blake oh, Snell. God. So, oh, hear me God. out. Just hear me out. Similar to Garrett Cole, Blake Snell has been one of the few bright spots in his team's awful, disgusting, disappointing season. <laughs> that's what's in that's the last time i'm gonna say that here yeah. i swear blake snell is leading the national league in era and has the second highest odds to win the cy young award right now but the momentum is starting to shift a little bit in his favor if he was to do that this would be his second cy young and his second era title and he would have one in each league so let's just say for hypothetical purposes like i said this is about the chance of him getting there not that he's there right now so let's say the season ends in a month, Blake Snell gets the second Cy Young, and he holds on to the ERA title. He has two Cy Youngs and two, RA, T, two, eh, two ERA titles, one for each league. Now, Blake Snell obviously would not be the only pitcher with two Cy Youngs who's not in the Hall of Fame. So there are five who are eligible oh, who have two Cy Youngs and are not in. I knew, I knew Santana, that was coming. I know. I know. I'm not, not going deeper into that, but I'm saying Yohan Santana is one of them. Brett Saberhagen. Denny McLean, Tim Lincecum, and Roger Clemens. We know why Roger's not in. So I'm going to disregard yeah. him right now. We're okay with that? Yes. So Johan, Saberhagen, McLean, and Lincecum. I'm not comparing Blake Snell and Roger Clemens. We're not – so not including the locks that we talked about earlier, that Kershaw, Verlander, Scherzer, Granke group. There are two other pitchers who are not eligible for the Hall of Fame yet who will have a much tougher chance or no chance at all to make the Hall of Fame, and that's Jacob deGrom and Corey Kluber. So for the sake of argument, like I said, we're going to eliminate Clemens. We're looking at Saberhagen, Santana, McLean, Lincecum, deGrom, and Corey Lincecum. Kluber. Two-time Cy Young Award winners who are not in the Hall of Fame or who likely will not or have a chance to not make it. Now let's go to the ERA titles. Out of that list, only one of those guys has more than one ERA title, and that is Johan Santana. We get Ron it. One. We get Cooper it. Has one. Saberhagen has one. Linscom and McLean have zero. So if Blake Snell wins the Cy Young and the ERA title, he will become one of two pitchers who are not in the Hall of Fame with two of each. And the other is Johan Santana. Now, I obviously think Johan's more worthy than Blake Snell as of right now, but I do want to point out that Johan won his two Cy Youngs with the Minnesota Twins. So this would make Blake Snell the only pitcher, eligible or not, besides Roger Clemens, to win two Cy Youngs 
and win two RA titles, one in each league, and not make the Hall of Fame. So, moving forward, I directly compared Blake Snell on Stathead, thank you Adam Drosky for creating this, to Johan Santana, Brett Saberhagen, Denny McLean, Corey Kluber, and Tim Lincecum. All of them have two Cy Youngs, none are in the Hall of Fame, but I wanted to see where Snell compared to these guys in the rate stats who are on the outside looking into the Hall of Fame. So in ERA, Blake Snell is second of that group, only behind Johan Santana. He's first in strikeouts per nine innings with 11.1 and over a strikeout and a half ahead of Corey Kluber. He's second in whip only behind Tim Lincecum, and he's third in ERA plus behind Santana and Saberhagen. So out of the guys who are on the outside looking in, who a lot of people try to advocate for, he's already in the middle of the pack. And he's played for less than 10 years. Right. So Snell is right there with these guys right in his peak. He is last in war at this point, but he's only one and a half war away from taking over both Lincecum and McLean for fourth. And remember, other than Corey Kluber, he's the only one who can increase his war number. So he's only going to go up. So like I said, is he a Hall of Famer yet? Absolutely not. But I can't remember a regular season month being more important for a specific person's Hall of Fame candidacy than September 2023 for Blake Snell. And I think if he's able to get it done, if he's able to lead the league in ERA and able to win that Cy Young, which both seem increasingly likely with every start, Snell, I think, vaults up dramatically if he can keep up what he's been doing. I also want to point out that a lot of young, big-name pitchers in the National League have taken significant steps back this season, namely Julio Urias, Sandy Alcantara, guys who were in the Cy Young Mm -hmm. running. And guys like Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer have now been traded to AL teams. So the competition, besides an Aaron Nola or a Spencer Strider, for an NL pitcher to win a Cy Young seems to be relatively low for next season. So I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility for Snell to contend for another one next year or the year after that. And it kind of compares to Max Scherzer. Max Scherzer didn't make his first All-Star team until he was 28. He won Cy Youngs in his age 31 and 32 season. Blake Snell's 30. And I want to repeat for any listeners, I'm and for you guys, because I know that this is going to be taken out of context, I'm not saying he's a Hall of Famer yet. But I think I you're saying, high as a kite. What I am saying is that if FanDuel or DraftKings had odds on if a guy would eventually make the Hall of Fame, I think Blake Snell would be the best pure value pick of anyone in Major League Baseball right now. Because this is on the verge of happening. I, and no one's uh, really discussing it. So allow me to be the first person. <laughs> And in 10 years, right now you laugh, you'll see in 10 years. I I'll be laughing in 10 years, buddy. Definitely contend for the Hall of Fame if he gets this done in September. I think you're this out of your mind. This if he chokes it. Disregard this whole message if he chokes it, but it's time. <laughs> I'm Zach runs this. It'll be late September anyway. All right, so so here's the thing. Here's here's the thing. Uh, you know, you look at those other pitchers that you just that you just listed off, and I look at and I look at Snell's stats. Snell has only been in the conversation for the Cy Young the year that he won and this year. Every other right. year, he's not even been anywhere in the conversation, which means he's not even considered a top 10 pitcher in baseball. Yes, the guy okay. is going to have two fantastic seasons. Does that make you a Hall of Famer? Absolutely freaking not. Can I his ask war, you his war is sure. way too low. Yeah. He's, not, he's not getting elected to All-Star Games. He's not. He's not doing anything. Again, I, I listen. If you were gonna, if you're gonna put a guy in the Hall of Fame based on two years and two years only, Lincecum would be in the Hall of Fame already. Santana would be in the Hall of Fame already. Now Santana was but, a great pitcher. 
and I know you love Santana, so I'm going to use this one on you. Santana was a great pitcher for more than just the years he won Cy Young. How many other years was he top 10 in Cy Young voting? Santana will get in the second he gets a veterans committee because more movement toward peak guys I can't. Will help I can't, out. at this point in Snell's career, based on how up and down it's been, put any money whatsoever on saying that he's going to be a Hall of Famer based on two years, one of those being five years ago. Well, the best thing about it is he's only eight years in. He has at least – I mean, you hope he has a 20-year career, right? So he – okay, so he's got probably it five, was. six Max good Scherzer years left. 31 and 32, and Max Scherzer was nowhere near this conversation before he won that second Cy Young. Well, yeah, Schnell's probably got at least quite, five or it, six it, good it, years it's, left. It's quite, it's quite possible. I mean, I'm not saying it's not possible, but to have this conversation now, I think it's ridiculous. I'm I'm starting it because I want to be the first one to say it so I can laugh at everybody and say it. So, not necessarily he's going to get in, but saying that the conversation is going to start. But I'm going to ask you this, Josh, because I think this is great that you brought up the fact that he's only been in the conversation for one season. How many – what do you think is the minimum uh, place you need to take in the MVP voting to be I mean, you got to be at least – you got to be at least get a vote for Cy Young. At least get a vote for Cy Young. Okay. I'm saying I'm saying this solely because I'm looking at his stats and they're terrible. Like there's nothing yeah, there's the nothing eye popping. He he had the he had the one season where he had an ERA under two and he was really 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 good and he won a Cy Young. And he's pitched very well this year, but every other year he's a mediocre. He is nothing better than a three starter every other year except the two years he won Cy Young. That is not a Hall of Fame pitcher. That's I'm sorry. true. It's it's little spotty right now. Yes, he has plenty of time to turn it over. Don't get me yeah. wrong. You know, like you said, Scherzer didn't become good until he was 28. But you know what? Then he was 28. He was first in Cy Young, fifth, fifth, first, first, second, third. If Snell can, if Snell can do something like that, hell yeah, he's a, he's a Cy Young pitcher. But until he has, until he can put two years back to back, where he is a top five pitcher in the National League, and like you said, there's not a lot of competition. No, I can't. I can't in my, in my right mind say that he's going to be there. Can I point something out, though? You think that Omar Vizquel, who had 50% of the vote before disgusting allegations came out against him, wouldn't have made the Hall of Fame if that didn't happen. He only got MVP votes in one season, and he finished 16th. He was going to get in. He had a trajectory to get in. I'm not saying he belonged in or not, and I certainly wouldn't vote for him now knowing what we know now. Scott Rowland, who I've come around on, and I honestly think he belongs after really looking at it. What? He had one top 13 MVP finish his whole career. Yeah, how is that helping your case right now? Because he had eight gold gloves, and that's beside the point. But my point is that in terms of style, you don't necessarily need to have that – Cy Young peak to get in. It, at the fact of the matter is that it doesn't matter if he doesn't get Cy Young votes in any other season. If he has three first place finishes in the Cy Young voting, he's in the Hall of Fame. And he'll be two thirds of the way there if he keeps it up. Let me ask you this. I know they don't really keep track of wins anymore. And just like, so what going forward, like what's going to measure a good pitcher besides um, awards? That's, that's what a lot of those guys are trying to figure out. Because wins are not going to be there. I I think strikeouts matter. I think I think ERA matters. I do look at Cy Young finishes, but like I said, in the case of Snell, I understand that the the chances are tough. He's going to need a third win. I recognize yeah. that, but I'm starting it a little early. I'm just well, saying he has, that to, he has to string in the conversations together 
that are good. He can't he can't just have a two ERA one season and a four and a half ERA the next season. Yeah, he is streaky. Like there's but a reason, there's reason three... why Tampa Bay got rid of him, and it's not because they have no money. It's because he wasn't good. But like I said, if you win three Cy Youngs, I can't see a reason to keep you out. And he may not even win a second. I'm not saying that he will, but you know, God, they're gonna people are going to advocate for Corey Kluber to get in. People oh, have advocated not. for Tim Lincecum to get in. People obviously advocate for Johan Santana. People have advocated for Brett Saberhagen. So if you get two, if you get two Cy Youngs, you're kind of in that conversation. Chris Sale next to we all going to think Chris Sale should be in the Hall of Fame. People do think Chris Sale should be in. He has six top five Cy Young finishes, but never ma- never won it. He's going to say never won one. But again, if you win, I think if you win three, you're in. I don't care what your other seasons are. I think that's enough. Like if Bryce yeah. Harper won the MVP next year, he's in. Rookie Betts wins the second MVP this year. If he win, I think he's in now. Quite frankly, but I think once you win a third, I don't. I don't care if you finish with you know. If Shohei Otani won three MVPs, yeah, he's in. Mm-hmm. No one has won three MVPs or three Cy Youngs and hasn't gotten in. Unless you're a pawn. Well, you know what? I'm going to pull a Kevin Cash here. So, and I'm going to tell Snow to go sit down on the bench because I don't see it happening. Good pun. I appreciate that. But, you know what? We'll, we'll revisit this after uh, the awards come out. And, and look, I will stand may, by my stand by my help. statement whether he wins this yeah, year or honestly, not. Yeah, I think Strider should win it. I, I would vote for Strider this year if I had a vote. But. See, I would not because I think once you have it, you have a 3.5 ERA with the best team in baseball behind you. I I just don't see it. I think he struggled too much. Snell has higher war than Strider this year, by the way. Oh, wow. Snell has one, has 0.9 higher war than Spencer Strider. Oh, okay. <laughs> and Zach Allen, he actually has a higher war than that's as well. That's, that's I think Zach Allen is currently the front runner and then Blake Snell's after him. Zach Allen has 3.9 war. Blake Snell has 4.2. So, mm. Like I said, you know I'm not a big war guy, but the sabermetric guys may gravitate to that. I think what's going to hurt Snell is that, quite frankly, his team pooped the best. It's bad. <laughs> but I think he, I, I think it's a Johan Santana type situation where Johan should have won this game. Artani won an MVP met. when his team was was hot poke. Yeah. But Tim, but sorry, Johan Santana should have beaten Tim Lincecum in Lincecum's first Cy Young voting. But the Mets bullpen blew so many of Santana's wins that back when they when wins mattered, they held it against them. So I think that's what's going to happen here with Blake Snell. The other thing that I noticed when I was actually doing this research, just off topic, Felix Hernandez only has one Cy Young. That just doesn't. Oh wow, sound that's right so anymore. funny because I love that guy and I will always think he should be in, but I guess he should. Honestly, I'm I'm not against it. I don't have him on the list right now, but it's really not a bad case. He does have the two ERA titles. So he doesn't have the Cy Young side of the Blake mm-hmm. Snell conversation. He did finish second two other times, though. Right. So I would obviously say Felix Hernandez would be more worthy than Blake Snell if Blake Snell won the Cy Young this year. But I'm just saying it's worth having the conversation. He should be on those JJF articles that evaluate the, the chances based on the season-to-season outlook. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Wow. King Felix doesn't even have three K strikeouts. I, no, I don't. Did. I don't. He, we always thought he was great, and, and yeah, he was. But uh, yeah, I don't know, man. I I don't know if he's. Gonna I don't think it. he gets in. I think he'll. No. I think he'll get a solid amount of votes, though. And like you were saying, Zach, just 
3K strikeouts has become more and more rare too. You know, yeah, right. Has it? Kershaw and Granky might. I mean, Granky's really it's crazy that guys that guys aren't back. getting that many strikeouts. Then again, I guess they're not pitching as many innings as they used to, considering of how high strikeouts have gone up in in general in the league. I mean, you know, the Yankees strike out 20, 20 times a game. You can so. look at a Granky case. I'm just looking at Zach Ranky right now, for example, like to answer Zach's original question of how, what are they going to look at? Zach Ranky won a Cy Young. He has six gold gloves, six-time All-Star. Um, he finished second in a Cy Young voting. He led the league at ERA twice. Like, you can look at that and, and voters, I hope, can say that's a Hall of Famer. I think he's not a first ballot Hall of Famer, but I think he'll get in relatively early on. If you look at CeCe Sabathia, his ERA is on the higher side, but he's a well-known pitcher in a big market who won a Cy Young, has five top five Cy Young finishes, never led the league in ERA, but led in wins twice. He'll be looked at as that workhorse, has 250 wins, which really won't happen a lot anymore. And he had that Brewers run that people are yes. always remember. So I, that's a guy who will get in. Honestly, get I think Jacob deGrom has a shot, but I think – the injury killed him, but a 2.5 career ERA with two Cy Youngs will get sabermetric guys interested. And he has the all-time record in strikeouts to walk ratio. Wow. So I don't – and that obviously can go down with more volume. He has a small yeah. sample size at the moment. But he does have the 10 seasons. He would technically be eligible. I don't think he would get it based on his resume right now, but – I wouldn't be against it if he did. I just I labeled him with the other group because I wanted to go under the assumption that he's going to have a more difficult time than Verlander, Scherzer, Greinke, and Kershaw. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that was my little hot take. I understand there's going to be pushback, but I'm just saying that the conversation should, that people should start talking about this. All right, start the Twitter account for ten years. You can run it. Yeah, no, I'm not doing that yet. Honestly, <laughs> we should do a poll and see like. Who I should advocate for for the whole uh, for our ten listeners? Yeah, let's do it. I'm thinking like Keith Hernandez or honestly Louis Tion, someone who's living because I I don't want to do the you know them putting people in after they die nonsense. Like either you're in or you're not, and I'm sick of seeing that. So someone who's living and someone who's been on the ballot for a really long time. Let's try to get them in while they can still enjoy it. Maybe we can start like a charitable organization for that. Okay. Uh, quick segue. We can really run through some rapid current events here. Um, I have ineptitude of the Angels organization. I just want to talk about the waiver wire situation. Marty Marino. They literally bought these guys a month ago, and they got rid of six of their players, mainly Giolito, Renfro, and Grichuk, who they bought. And now, like, it's just a salary dump for them. I like how embarrassing is this, man. Remember when I said Giolito was overrated? He went one in five with a seven ERA with the Angels. Oh my god! <laughs> Told you. I mean, I, I. With that being said, I would still pick him up if I was a playoff. No, team. me too. He's a good five starter. He's a low risk, high reward guy to get right, right now. I think it'd be a fool not to take a flyer on him if you have any playoff implications. But it, it, there's a good chance of a bust here. I thought the Yankees were an embarrassment uh, yeah. to baseball. And then I look at the Angels. Yeah, it's better. It's like watching like reality TV and watching how much of a mess. Watching the Mets. Is watching I mean, the Mets. How yeah, do you, go, you have the best guy in baseball. You don't trade him. You go all in. It doesn't work no, no, out. No, no, and now you no, no, look no, hold stupid. You don't have the best guy in baseball. You have the best two guys. Oh, my mistake. Baseball. Yeah, you forgot. 
<laughs> They're always hurt. But we um, start that conversation is Trout really still a top two player in baseball? Top five? Up, no, he's not. No, not even close. <laughs> he would be. Yeah, if he can play a full season. Canceled. Yeah, but it's embarrassing, dude. And now, like, I know how Tani's hurt now. So they were caught in the middle anyway, but they were going to look stupid with whatever they did. And I think this is actually the worst outcome. Like somehow they still found a way to make this the worst possible outcome for themselves. What do you think someone would have offered for Otani before he tore his UCL? Uh, half the farm system. Not even had that factor in. I don't think anybody would have traded for him, to be honest with you. Why would you? You know he's not going to stay with the Angels. So you make your bid in for agency. Because you have to resign him anyway. That's why I was thinking Atlanta, because no one in the farm system is going to get reps on the Braves the way they're currently constructed. Because everyone's on such team friendly deals. That's you know the guy where you're not risking anything. You might as well bring him in and try to lock up a World Series. But Artie Marino insisted on not going for it. I'm sorry, on not taking the trade and going for it this year. Which, in one respect, I I. Guess I can't blame him for being in denial, thinking that Otani was sure. and trying to make something out of this disaster that's been going on for the last decade with the Angels. Because then you're really just saying I'm giving up on Mike Trout's, you know, yeah, end of prime, we'll say, and Shohei mm-hmm. Otani's full prime. And that's hilarious. The Seattle went out and sold, and then now they're first in the it's damn division. Unreal. <laughs> They even passed the Texas Rangers. And I also right? have to <laughs> it's unbelievable, man. And I can't believe that. I mean, the Yankees waved Bader too, which was just sad because, I mean, good oh, stop. He was not the problem. Bad. Josh Donaldson, good riddance. No, Josh Donaldson terrible. was in the front seat of the caravan going out yeah. of town. But Bader, I, I love I love listening to the interviews that, 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 that Boone does with, with John Boy and then, and his media group and, and – they were they were alive when when that drive about Donaldson and and Boone goes yeah you know we just wanted to you know give him a chance to go play on a playoff what? team it's like what playoff team wants a guy that hits two hundred yeah and hits fifteen home runs a year while barely being able to fill his position because he's ninety five years old who but, is going to pick but that I up I thought Aaron that it was right in front of us right. Comebacks right there. Anymore, or is it in front of us for 2024 now? Yeah, we're, we're shooting to next before year. Before after Christmas of 2035. <laughs> Let's go. Yeah. No, I I don't mind I don't mind Bader going because he was terrible. He's absolutely terrible. And they knew it when they got him that he was never he was never a hitter. He was a defensive center fielder, and Yankees had no center fielder because they got rid of Hicks and Gardner. As they should have. We get it. And Gardner. <laughs> He's just old. But so, could we chalk this up as another failed trade for Brian Cashman now? I oh yeah, mind, absolutely. I, I like Bader, but I'm fine with I would have much. I would have much. See, the thing is, is that the thing is that if you look at the Yankees' starting rotation, they traded Montgomery because we got too many starters, man. We got too many. We don't look need them. Look at them now. Look, look at them now. All right, and Monty is solid. Cole's good. Oh, we have Severino. Cortez is hurt. Right. Cortez is hurt. Severino's a dumpster fire. Rodon's a dumpster fire and hurt. We really had a, we finally got the Cy Young season. is a dumpster Cole. fire and hurt. And this was a circumstance. Clark Schmitt's yeah, a we're going to waste the uh, prime of Garrett Cole. He's just going to keep doing this. And then when the Yankees are actually good, he's going to be bad because he's old. By the way, we're talking about Cy Young finishes for Garrett Cole. We, we can pretty much chalk up that'll be a top five Cy Young finisher this year, and that will be his sixth top five finish. I mean, he should win it. 
right? And if he if he does win it, it'll be his first Cy Young, and he'll have three it. top two finishes with two ERA titles if he hangs yeah. on. He's going to win it and waste it on this team. It's really a shame. Unbelievable, man. It's a shame Brian Cashman is the worst GM in he baseball. Needs to go. When's that fire Cashman protest next month? Oh, I need to have it every day until the end of the season. Just stop going to games. I mean, it's really that easy. You want it, you want something to change? Affect Hal's right. freaking wallet. Michael K says we're not really about. fans if we stop caring. Okay. Michael K is an idiot. Okay. <laughs> Michael K knows who I pays like his Michael freaking K, paychecks. He, he, Michael K, Michael K, I like Michael K, but he is he is one of the biggest homers there has ever existed. He knows who signs his but paychecks. He, yo, it says he's not okay. a Yankees boy. But I, I like I said, I love Michael K. I won't. He tells it like it is for the most K. part. And like it is that Brian Cash needs to take a hike. He needs to take a long walk off a short bridge. Might I suggest the Brooklyn Bridge? <laughs> Okay. Uh, yeah. All right. Moving on to the White Sox. Um, Another team that makes it better. Speaking yeah, of dumpster let's fires. Let's talk about an actual uh, security failure here. Uh, first of all, they had a concert night. A, I think it was a hip-hop concert. But um, without telling anyone, because, you know, they wanted the butts in seats because money. It was vanilla <laughs> ass. <laughs> they wanted some ass. money. So, you know, fans actually showed up to this game. Um <laughs> Without telling the fans prior to the game, you know, fans wait after the ninth inning is over, and there's just a graphic on the Jumbotron that the concert has been canceled due to technical issues. So fans start really, really upset. Why well, just started blasting? And um, there was a shooting in the stadium. How the actual hell do you allow a gun to get inside a baseball stadium in 2023? Like, I, I don't even know what Security to say. Security Well, Chicago, baby. Like ticket, but they let someone in with a gun. <laughs> well, obviously, obviously, they had to know you paid. They, 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 they give a crap about yeah. somebody shooting. They had yeah, to know you paid. They at it while I'm scanning the ticket. They didn't look, <laughs> and then they made me walk back twice. Listen, if, you, if you've ever been to a sporting event, you know that every once in a while you walk through a machine, and it doesn't exactly <laughs> work. came up green. And then it came up twice red for them, and they were wondering why. Because it already scanned, moron. But magically, this guy can get in with a gun. Yeah, the ineptitude of this organization like, how is does that just happen? absurd, man. Um, I don't know if you saw this too, but there was a relocation rumor came out that the White Sox are – nothing's confirmed at all, but it just said they were considering options to leave Chicago. And my first thought was, one, where the hell are you going? Your team is bad. Um Montreal, Montreal, Louisville. Uh, Nashville is always a topic these days. Everyone thinks Nashville is getting an MLB team. Nashville. Um, I don't. I don't think that's happening. I think the White Sox are going to stay put. That's just Long Island. Yeah, no, they're not going to move. Long Island White Sox. Definitely Long Island, right? Not that shithole. Uh, Nashville. Orlando is actually um, making a big push for Why? a baseball. Why? Team. Orlando Catholic. But nobody, nobody shows up for the two teams that are already in Florida. But it, the reason why is accessibility. It's a pain heard. to get to it. Yeah, the big, they, they're quoting the big tourism industry. But I think the MLB should really see how Vegas pans out. Because like we're all saying, um, I think Vegas is going to work for a year. And then all the tourists are going to stop going. I disagree. I don't know, dude. The Vegas Golden Knights have been there for, what, five years now? And they seem to sell out every freaking game. The thing is that you have a different audience every week. 
So there's going to be no diehard fans. Well, Vegas has diehard. I mean, the Knights have diehard fans. Think of the Knicks. The Knicks have the same thing. There's tourists all the time. So no matter how bad the team is, people still go. Because they want to go to a Knicks game. I'm telling you right now, I you know, whenever I get to go to Vegas for the first time, the first thing that I'm going to want to do, believe it or not, is to go to one of those games. I will be too. <laughs> so like that's how, and a lot of people think like us. See how the people in Nevada, you have the people all over that area of the country who would drive cross state. I mean, outside of California, how many baseball teams really are in the Southwest? Arizona, that's it. Yeah, that's really it. 